Friends. My name is Helena Kennedy, and uh, I'm the principal here at Mansfield College, and I welcome you to tonight's uh, lecture in the Mansfield series. And it's a great pleasure to introduce to you Nikhil Strandberg. I met this incredible explorer when I heard him speaking at the Hay Festival, and uh, I decided that I had to lure him to Mansfield uh, so that uh, you could hear him too. And I also felt that how else was I going to get somebody that would thrill the geographers? Uh, and, uh, and I thought that I could definitely do that as well as everybody else, because I can assure you that it, it's, uh, his life has been extraordinary. Um, Mika is a, is a Swede, and he started his professional life as an explorer 28 years ago, and he is now many things as well as an explorer, because he's a lecturer, he's a filmmaker and a writer, and has produced a whole set of wonderful books, um, and four terrific documentaries, one on Patagonia, um, 3,000 kilometers by horse, uh, the Maasai people, 1,000 kilometers by foot, and um, then minus 58 degrees exploring Siberia on skis, and then an exhibition um, uh, expedition to Yemen, 126 degrees in the shade. Um, well, I almost feel like saying to you, you just have to hear, hear this man, and then you'll know all about him. And we have, we're lucky to have here Pamela, his, his terrific wife, and he has two children, Eva and Scarlett. Um, uh, little one, Scarlett, is, um, is asleep at this moment, but she may join us in the course of the lecture. Um, but Eva is here too. And so, um, it's my great pleasure to welcome Miguel to you. He's been living here in Britain for a while, but then has, and I thought he was still living here, but he's actually been with his family most recently in Kazakhstan. Um, he's made the most incredible journeys, some by bicycle. Um, uh, for example, in Chile, from Chile to Alaska, from Norway to South Africa, um, from New Zealand to Cairo. Um, some by horse, as you've heard, the Patagonian trip through Chile into Argentina. He's also, as you've heard, walked the Maasai land in eastern Africa, Kenya, and Tanzania. And um, he's explored northeastern Siberia, the Kolyma River, by canoe and by skis. I mean, there's nothing he can't do. Um, uh, he's, he's done expeditions in the Yemen. And I think I, I've heard you just after you've been to the Yemen, um, where you travel by camel, um, and you've made two incredibly uh, and difficult journeys. And, um, and then, most recently, an expedition to the frozen frontier, traveling through Siberia with reindeer and sleds. Now, that's not quite the most recent. I think the most recent was traveling from Manchester to Buckingham Palace with a pram. Yeah. On foot, with Scarlet in the pram. Yeah. yeah. So, can I introduce you all to this extraordinary man, Neil Strandberg? A, a, a stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, almost every day I get uh, emails from people from all over the world who ask me the same question: What does it take to 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 get a life like yours? 
And uh, some people are fascinated by it. I, I don't really know why to tell you the truth. And I will tell you why, because it has a price choosing a life which is very different to everybody else. And um, initially I answered all people who wrote to me, you know, it was very popular a few years ago, you know, the American seeing you gave five tips how to change your lifestyle, all these silly things really. So nowadays I basically just answer, get out there in life, take as many punches from life as you can and what will define if you can take this life or not is how many times you actually stand up when you get punched. And I, so I, I then decided because I've spent almost 10 years lecturing about the same thing, an expedition I did to the Kolima 2004-2005. And this expedition changed my life completely. And, and, and just to show you how profound it actually changed me, uh, because you know I come from a small village in central northern Sweden not a lot of people at all I've lived in a village with 12 people and 75 dogs the last 15 years of my life and suddenly I go to Siberia I spend a year there fishing and hunting my big dream and before I left there I heard all these stories about Russia about how bad things were. And suddenly here I came across the best people I've ever met. They've gone through everything. These were people, a lot of people would look down on because they've run away from something because they've done something bad. But it turns out, you know, they had compassion, a heart, a kindness I've ever seen. And uh, when I came back after that year, what happened first was that I, you, you know how we are in the West, we have this need to portray ourselves as much better than others, we still do today. So I came back and for some unknown reason, I globally was hailed as somebody who's done the coldest in, expedition ever in history. Which is kind of interesting considering people have local people have lived there for 5,000 years and they travel up and down all the time. But that's the way we are. And I kind of bought this idea of being the, the great explorer. On top of that, when I came back to Sweden after this trip, it felt like this was life, this was all I wanted to do. What now? And in combination with, believe, you know, suddenly believing that you were something better than anybody else, my life just crashed completely. I, you know, I'm not even going to go in and tell you how bad it was. But just to give you an idea, which you might understand, initially when I came back, I got invited everywhere, you know, to big things. I was meeting important people. I was the first one they brought up. Uh, as a storyteller on a dinner or whatever. And suddenly when life went wrong, they still continued to, to invite me because it takes time until you realize people are not doing as well as before. And I remember one time, you know, it, it's a spe specific group in Sweden where you get invited if you've done something extraordinary. It, it's not a secret society, but in one way. 
and I used to get invited every year and after three or four years of this, you know, I was at the end of those who, who were invited to hold a, a, a dinner talk. It was even so bad so I had to stand up by myself and give a speech even if I wasn't asked for it and obviously it didn't go too well and I didn't talk about what I was supposed to talk about. And then I realized life has gone wrong. Complete silence after that. And it was Siberia who, who, who kind of complicated life because this is a, what a profound experience it is. So I tried to kind of find ways to get back and it, it basically took me six years of a walk in some of the toughest areas of life. I mean, you know, on a personal level. So I realized the only way for me to, 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 to survive is to find a, an expedition or something which can get me back to base again. And uh, one of my friends, an oil baron, he said, why don't you take a group of my people over to Oman and take them around there and give them a perspective of the oil business, of which I knew nothing, of course, but that's what I did. And on the plane going to Oman, I opened up, you know, this map where you can fly from here to there, and then I suddenly saw if I walk from the easternmost tip of, no, westernmost tip of Oman, no, easternmost tip of Oman, and walk or travel by camel that I wanted, I could make it possibly all the way to the Atlantic coast. And I thought, if I do that, I'll be back again. But I didn't really have my heart in it. And if you don't have your heart in it, things just doesn't go wrong, right. Even if I had all the contacts, everything, I realized it would never happen. And I was so tired of life. You have to remember I'm Swedish now. We are a dog people. We're easy to the gun and committing suicide. It's part of who we are. You can never get away from that. It might be sad for you guys, but that's how we are. So I was so fed up with life, so I gave myself a last chance. I need to learn Arabic because I realized the communication between Islam and the West is just not going well. Maybe I can do a journey and try to build a bridge between the cultures. So I need to, learn, I need to become Arabic. So I looked at the schools and then I was so lucky to find the most dangerous country, according to the newspapers in the world, Yemen, where the chance of either getting kidnapped or bombed into pieces were relatively high. And I thought, this is the place to go. <laughs> so I went to Yemen. And what happened, as always, when you have given up? Because the thing is, we have also such a need to portray ourselves as... We are the ones who stand up after a punishment, but you, you guys know, you can never survive without other people. So I arrived in Yemen, was shocked, had no idea it would be such an extraordinary place. And as always, the people, just like on Siberia, the harder, the better. Wherever I came, I came across these people who gave me perspective. And imagine that I was this guy who was giving up, going to this place to be blown up into pieces. I landed there 48 years old, in a war, and met a young lady from North America. You 
unfortunately is called the drama, and I bet you. She She's kind of, and, and I had not expected this at all. She was there to learn Arabic like me. I found a life partner, and we both not only fell in love with each other, we fell in love with Yemen. So we decided we have to return. Because at this time, it, once again, the Anglo-Saxon media, I'm not a big fan of the media in the States and Britain, it was all against Yemen, no context, no perspective. So, and suddenly they were starting to talk about this group called Al-Qaeda. So we realized we just have to go there to make a difference. So two years later, we returned with a daughter in the middle of a war between three, well, basically three big clan members, the Al-Ahmars, General Morse, and then, then Abdul Ali Saleh. And when we landed in Sana'a, it was kind of split. It was shooting, bombing throughout the day between these clans. And this is Freedom Square where you were not allowed to go. And there were so many things you were not allowed. You were definitely not allowed to leave the capital of Sana'a. So, uh, this is what life is about. If you want to make a difference, you have to put all effort into it. I, my life has had, had returned due to wife and a child, and I realized there is always a possibility to make a difference. So what I did in the middle of the war, I was able to get out of Sana'a to do a trip. And I will show you this one here. I think you could do a film in every corner here. 24 hours in. Shukran Jaziland. Det var när jag satt hemma och följde utvecklingen under den så kallade arabiska våren och jag insåg hur oerhört negativ världens media var när det gällde Yemen som jag förstod jag måste åka ner dit för att visa min bild av Yemen. Ett land fyllt av varma människor och så är verkligheten sådan att för att förstå den övriga arabvärlden måste man förstå Yemen. Tamam? Tamam? Sanaa är helt stängt till förd av krigen och det innebär att jag sitter här, jag har bara några, jag egentligen bara tre veckor på mig att göra den en av de svåraste delarna av färden. Över två höga berg för att komma hit till Sanaa. Jag måste köpa en kamel, måste träna en sån. Och... Ja, men ja. Det var lite krångar men inte något större, det är ju trots allt jämnt så allting går att lösas med glatt humör och lite skämt. Det har bara, vi har åkt, vad kan vi ha åkt? 15 km och vi har haft nästan 30 kontroller. Och den sista var mycket svår, en massa frågor men vi kom igenom. Och det som väntar nu det är att eh, jag ska ge mig iväg tillsammans med Amin här. Vi ska försöka hitta en kamel och ta oss från Sabid eller 
Betalfaki tillbaka till Sanna som är direkt av min fel. Jag har ju inte kommit fram här. Så vad är du doing now? Jag har gatt för this afternoon. Så vad do you think gatt is good for them? I don't know because it is ba more bad than good. Då är det så att säga dags att ge sig iväg Sabed. Gått alldeles för fort alltihop i vanlig ordning. Köpt en kamel, hoppas säljaren när vi kommer fram. Hyrt med ägaren här så att vi ska lära oss både jag och Amin hur man hanterar kameler. Vi ska se hur det går. But you have no gear brother. You have nothing to carry. I will carry my body. Salam alaikum. Salam alaikum. بعدين تبقى اب صنعة ثاني الان بعيد بعيد قليل بعيد ايش بعيد بكل ماشي اركب العبور سياره اركب سياره ممتاز كثير فوق هذا افضل خمس وعشرون سنوات يمشي ماشي زي كل على على في وقت يوارهر مكي اتمركسم هيت وارفين كوم امريكي Ofta så trodde de ändå att vi var judar ute och letade efter skatter eller somaliska flyktingar. Och den här oron gjorde då att de lokala skäkarna nästan varje kväll skickade ner någon beväpnad vakt till oss. Eller ändå så skickade de ner mat som bröd och bönor. Very upset, very angry, because the road is very hard for the camel and for him. Det är lite upprörda känslor här nu efter den här hårda turen. Vad heter han? Kamelföraren vill gärna slå en flaska i skallen. Han tyckte jag utsatt han för så hårt arbete. Vi fick just reda på att kidnappningsrisken är stor i det här området. Så kommer en bil med mycket folk, mycket män, alla i vapen här så får vi vara försiktiga. Det är inga ovanliga att de tar en västerna och sen man använder påtryckning för att få lite bättre förutsättningar från regeringen. Så jag kan inte visst här förstå det. Här kommer en bil. Nu är jag på väg tillbaka för att göra den allra svåraste delen av resan. 150 mil från Sanao så långt österut som jag kan. Och det som väntar nu det är världens hetaste öken mitt på sommaren. Och det sägs också att här kanske Al-Qaida gömmer sig. Vi får väl se.
So I did return back to an even worse situation than ever. It was virtually impossible to, 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 be, to get in. I did get in eventually after five months of negotiating. And once I was there, nobody wanted to come with me because at this time, Al-Qaeda, according to Anglo-Saxon media, was everywhere. So nobody dared to, jo to join me. The only one I could find <clears throat> was a young Swedish female journalist, Tanya Holm, who'd lived in Yemen for a few years and spoke fluent Arabic. And uh, I was able to, to persuade her to come with me. Uh, to get out of Sana'a, we only got a permission to fly into Al-Mahara and fly out basically just to stop at the airport and swap a plane and go back again. That was the idea. Obviously, we got out of the plane and, and we spent a month before we took it back. And uh, once we turned up in Al-Mahara, which is one of the hottest deserts in the world, we met the local people, the better. These There are a lot of discussion around this, but I'm one of them who believe with the first people who came to the Arabian Peninsula from Africa were the Bedouin. Today is the Bedouin, who are, you know, cons consist of many different tribes. And the first thing we heard was when we came across this fellow, Salim Al-Mahali, he said, not again, not, not another bunch of white people coming, traveling with camel hair. And I was kind of shocked, so I said, so when was the last one here? And he said, well, at least 40 years ago. <laughs> and it turned out that the guy who passed by here was the very well-known Wilfred Thesiger, a British explorer who came here, passed by here with his Umani guides, as I called them. So not a lot of things happening here still today. What I wanted to do was to cross an area of Al-Mahara to get into a, an area called Hadramut in, in, in the north, which turned out was much more difficult than I thought because, as always, wherever we were supposed to come, Al-Qaeda would be there to kidnap us. And it took us about one month to walk 350 kilometers. And this is important to say, <coughs> First of all, there's, it's very hard to find camels today who, who are trained to do these trips because as local people, they prefer to travel by vehicle. And to find somebody who want to come with us and walk, that wasn't easy either. And there was a lot of mistakes, for example. I have a, quite a bad sense of humor, and I, I always had my water in something which is called like it's like a camel bag. You have it on, on your back and then it's like a, you just suck on it like this. And the local people asked me the first day, what is it? So I said, it's an antenna. Which meant that they thought I never drank any water. <laughs> so to be as strong as they thought I was, they didn't want to drink any water either. And to walk in 126 degrees without drinking water for six hours is extraordinarily dangerous. These are local people, though, so they're used to it. So, and they also have a completely different perspective to how we look upon heat. 
And I often get the question, what is harder, extreme heat or, or extreme cold? <clears throat> and there's quite a major difference in, in some ways. Extreme is always extreme, which means basically you do a mistake and you've, it won't, you, you know, you've had it. The problem with heat is that you can't take your skin off. When it's cold, you can always put a, additional gear. There's, in the desert, there's hardly ever anything to drink. So it's much easier to do mistakes and, well, not being able to continue. But as always, even though I could, I could have bought a piece of sandpaper, for example, because the maps we had, that no village is nothing. But in reality, you know, there were people every 10 miles, more or less, throughout the trip. And they always knew we were coming and they were always prepared for us. And this is what I say, human beings, they are extraordinary. But the most extraordinary ones of them all, they, they are the ones who have nothing but still continue to survive during these harsh circumstances. Still today, there's nothing out there pretty much for them to do. And these cars you see are, are more or less all what people bring in from the Gulf countries when they go and work there. And uh, there's very few young people left in this area anymore. So it definitely felt like a, a, an area we walked through, which in just a few years will be gone. And uh, after traveling for a month, we came through on the other side to Roma, to the civilization, and people told us, Al-Qaeda is here. At least that's what we heard about. And we were really scared for a day and so because we bought the propaganda as well. And then it turned out it was just a family from a village called Al-Qaeda, just south of Paris, who was here visiting. So that's Al-Qaeda we saw. So after all these, should I say, thoughts of life, it seemed like it had changed. And just a few weeks later, I was sitting like this with another daughter, Dana Sardana, and a family in the coldest inhabited place on earth in Yakutsk, in the Republic of Sakha in Siberia, preparing to do a trip by reindeer. This is also important. I, I kind of want to take away the myth of the explorer a bit, because as you can see here, it's 58 degrees below zero. And I took it in a village where we, we called Omyakon, which is one of the coldest inhabited villages on earth. But what they do here to, to, to try to get tourists is that they add on a few degrees and it looks more colder than it in reality is. And how did I know that? Because when I took this photo, a, a bunch of school kids just passed me and I knew they are not allowed to go to school if it's below 50 in Siberia. So I knew they, they faked it. So don't believe everything you see. I was here to do a film about the, what I call the last freest human beings on earth. At least that's how I saw them before the trip. These guys that you see here, it's only four of them, four reindeer herders belonging to a tribe called the Event. They, believe, they have kind of a semi-nomadic life, which means that they spend 11 months a year more or less traveling back and forth on the same route with 35 reindeers picking up food which they bring back and leave in villages along route. 
And uh, so I joined them and I wanted to do two things. I wanted to figure out what is best. Is it modern powder gear or is it the native dress which is made of, in this case, uh, reindeer skins of course and horse and uh, dog. And uh, they all, <coughs> as you can see, it's incredibly happy. And before I, I, I left, I put on 40 pounds of fat because, you know, after six weeks of this, even though I, I didn't do a lot of hard work, all these 40 pounds were gone just to, to keep the cold away. It's that cold, so you need all the energy. But in the beginning, with all this fat, it was really dangerous because we had to do a lot of crossing of ice. And if we stopped, it was a possibility we would go through. Even if the ice was, you know, like three meters thick, where you have a lot of currents, it's, it's thin, and you can't see that. So we had to do a lot of running, and having another 40 pounds to carry was really hard. This is a unique lifestyle, and one of these four people who still live it is a woman called Vika. And the work you have to put in to survive is pretty much like this, that say you've tra you travel a whole day, six or seven hours. At times it's 70, 75 degrees below zero. We didn't have this Fahrenheit, which, which means, you know, you do one mistake and you get a lot of cold sores. All of them had cold sores here running, but they didn't care about it at all. And when you've traveled the whole day, you have to find a place where the reindeer can eat. And snow is deep and they do all the digging themselves. And uh, if you get a bit of warm weather with cold, it means you get a hard, hard kind of cover, which means they will starve to death. So it's an important job. Then you put up the tent, everything from scratch. You have to get rid of two meters of snow, put up camp, make a floor, make all the tent poles, everything, and then get the stove going. And this takes every evening like two hours and when you've done that it's cooking and all the rest then you get a few hours of sleep and you dismantle camp and you leave again and they live like this day and night for for almost a year traveling like this is it freedom i think so it's freedom you know not to have to mix with modern society which has a lot of advantages of course though i could never live here I'm too spoiled by our society, it's too hard, far too hard. And today they are threatened because the government obviously doesn't like this life and they are doing their best to, to terminate it. And uh, my idea was kind of to put a perspective of these people who are so good at handling extreme cold. And, uh, you know, there, there's no simple way to do it, handling extreme cold. Uh, you just basically have to move all the time. Because when it goes below minus 60, if you don't move all the time, the liquid that you have in your knees and your elbows will freeze to ice. So there's a big chance you'll just go over like timber like that. So you have to move and you, you, you have to understand what you have to do. And people here, they die all the time. I thought they knew everything, but it doesn't take a lot to do a mistake. So, that's pretty much what I've learned throughout these trips of extreme travel, is that no matter where you go, the best people you've ever come across with a compassionate 
that's his people. But it's a harsh life none of us will, will be able to live. So after this, we returned back home and uh, we ended up in even a colder, harsher, more difficult place. Uh, not this one, though. This is the Eva. Yeah, it's my oldest. We didn't dare to show it for the Swedish authority. We thought the social people would come across. <laughs> anyway, we ended up in a much harsher, much colder place, Moss Side, Manchester, <laughs> where we spent a year which completely changed how we look upon life. I can tell you the most important time of my life. And uh, it was such a shock to tell you the truth, so I decided. Is this England? That's when I decided to take my sardana in a stroller. So we walked from Moss Side, Sheffield, and Birmingham, and then all the way down to Buckingham Palace. It was a great trip. Really, really, I, uh, the most important I've ever done. And I'm working on that documentary now. And whilst we came through, Helena has always come by. And we did. So thanks. If you have any questions, do not hesitate to ask anything you want to know. Right. Thank you.